Hi, folks, and welcome to another Wildlife View podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Payne, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Daryl Ratajek. We are the Wildlife For You podcast team, and we talk about wildlife and wildlife conservation in ways that make sense. Today, we're going to be talking about intelligence, but instead of talking about intelligence in people terms, such as high IQs or, say, an understanding of astrophysics or calculus, we're going to be talking about animal intelligence and what makes an animal smart. Excellent, excellent intro there, Steph. Let me say I'm so glad you suggested this topic. Whoa, whoa, there you go again. Straight to business. What's up with that? (laughs) Well, I I think that critic of yours has me flustered. I pretty much feel that all my creative juices and witty whims have just abandoned me. Okay, first, still not just my... And second, I, I don't know why you let it get to you. I know, I know. I, I do need to work on that. You, you know I'm sensitive, though. <laughs> yes, you're such a snowflake. Um, you, you better work on it. You know, part of the enjoyment of this is us just being us. So just let it roll. I know I will. So anyway, like I started to say, I'm really, really glad you did suggest this topic, Steph, because it never dawned on me how much I remark about how intelligent certain animals are. Put it this way. I teach a lot of classes. In particular, I teach a lot of bear classes, and I'm always telling people how smart these critters are, but I never ever really dive into explaining what that really means. You know, we can take a deep dive into this topic and still probably not even do a good job explaining what that means, but I think it's something that's just so crazy cool, interesting to talk about. Yeah, totally agree. And We are entering into a little bit of unknown territory ourselves, since neither one of us specialize in this concept of animal intelligence. So instead of explaining things, uh, you know, hopefully this podcast is simply going to lead people to questioning things and hopefully doing more, you know, good research on their own. Yeah, agreed. And anyway, I'm, I'm really going to need some help kicking this episode off, Steph. Um, I know some animals are smarter than others. And prime example, just... Just look at the difference between cats and dogs. Man's best friend, the dog, it's brilliant. Many times it's really, really brilliant. And I swear my two dogs, they're they're awesome. But they literally seem to read my mind. Like, it's as if they know what I'm going to say even before I say it. Cats, on the other hand, you know as well as I, they often exhibit the grain, the grain, the brain capacity of a shoe. Okay, well... Be nice. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's a couple of cat lovers out there that might follow our show. Well, the fact that their cats fall somewhere between a hiking boot and a slipper in terms of intelligence, not my fault. You know, they, <laughs> they really could have opted for a dog if they wanted to. <laughs> okay, enough. I, I, I will not have you criticize my fatness anymore. <laughs> uh, you probably should clarify that your fatness is the name of your overly plump barn cat there. <laughs> yeah. Oops. <laughs> Sometimes I, I kind of forget that we're on air with people who don't like just know that about me. So yes, I was absolutely embarrassingly referring to my barn cat. All right. Well, just do me a huge favor, Steph, because you, you know how much I love them. But just promise me that for the rest of the show, we don't have to try explaining cat intelligence because I just have absolutely no explanation why they got the short end of the stick. <sighs> 
deal. But just for the recordness, I, I the record, I think that stubbornness is more a thing for a cat's part. I mean, you know, dogs have owners. Cats just happen to have employees. So, you know, maybe they're doing something right. Uh, <laughs> well, anyway, so what do you say we focus on a, on a couple of species that are known for having like high above average intelligence in the animal world? That sounds like an awesome plan. But before we can even get started with that, how in the world do we even explain or even begin to talk about animal intelligence? Oh, dang, Daryl. Uh, that, that's kind of a deep question. Um, hmm. You know, defining animal intelligence, it's actually kind of difficult. I mean, for starters, everything comes from a human defined concept of what intelligence means. Then, you know, the challenges of comparing one animal to the next, even though we're talking about completely different morphology or forms in some cases and in different environments. Um, some, some would probably argue that intelligence is demonstrated by how, how well an animal can survive in their environment. But there's a lot of difference between instinct and intelligence. You know, instinct says it's cold, I must find warm den. Whereas intelligence is the ability to be, you know, plopped into a new environment and learn how to make it work, um, you know, rationally, even if you, you lack that instinct. So, and granted, for the record, that's totally a Stephanie definition, and I, I think it's even limiting what I'm thinking by a pretty wide margin, so that was terrible. Yeah. The, the funny thing is, you described that, I'm laughing on the inside, because I find it ironic that you kind of used uh, the simple explanation of getting out of the cold to help define, like, instinct and intelligence, and where I'm getting at is, I love wearing shorts, and so Typically, most people wear shorts when it's warm outside, say 70 degrees or warmer. And right now, I am in Buffalo, New York, where it is nowhere near that temperature. It's about 20 degrees outside. But I continue to wear shorts. And all my family and friends are like, are you crazy? Are you, <laughs> are you nuts for like wearing shorts? And I tell them I'm inside the house all the time. And what temperature is it inside a house? Usually close to 70 degrees. So I'm the only, I'm the only one with intelligence here because I'm wearing shorts in 70 degree weather. And then they bring it, well, you're outside for a little bit. Would you believe I just went over to my dad's house and, and dummy me just took a header on the ice and uh, <laughs> I got to send, I got to send you a picture of what my leg looks like because I, I split it open. It looks like raw meatloaf right now. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's what I I've been waiting my whole life for. Yeah, that's just great, Daryl. So so anyway, go, going back to who's more intelligent now? Maybe maybe my family and friends were kind of onto something when they told me not to wear shorts in the wintertime. So <laughs> anyway, all right, let, let's let's talk about our our animal critters here. So how how do we measure intelligence? Like if if we could ignore that ability to survive in the wild. And that's where the whole instinct thing came in. So what other measures can we use to define animal intelligence? And I know one train of thought is that language is sometimes used by some people as a good measure of intelligence. Yeah, but, you know, language, language is problematic. You and I think of language or communication in terms of spoken words. Yeah, we have lots of science that indicates language is so much more than that. You know, human communication is very little about the words and much more about the tone and inflection, the way we say something and the body language and facial expressions used during that communication. 
So, you know, while it'd be nice to equate putting together words in complex sentences as a sign of intelligent life, we're not looking at the full picture there even of communication. So in what if, what if certain animals don't even use vocalizations? What if their main form of communication is through reading minute body language and maybe added pheromones or other chemicals that we, we can't even detect, let alone comprehend? So they could actually be speaking, air quotes speaking, in a more complex term than we could even understand. All right, Mrs. Einstein, I, I love that description you just had, because one of the things, one of my favorite critters, well, it's not one of my favorite critters, I think it's, it's a really cool looking critter. Did you ever see those moths, and I don't even know what kind they are, but their antennae looks like some kind of uh, crazy leafy structure, it just has so mm -hmm. many different flingies going off in all different directions, and mm -hmm. literally what that is, it, it allows them to capture these chemical signals given off by other other members of their species far, far away. And so the fact that they're communicating with other moths from a great distance through their antennae, that right there is like their form of communication is way better than human form right off the bat. So anyway, yeah. um, so let's let's strike out the whole language because we're we're always thinking of language and the human construct. So how do you propose we talk about animal intelligence? Well, you know, we do have lots of things that we use when we're trying to evaluate the intellect of an animal. And, and some of it has to do with like actual reasoning skills, some of it with the ability to learn and then implement that learning or, in, you know, we'll even throw in teach it to others, like teach it to offspring. Um, so quite a bit of that does relate to cognition. And just to clarify for everyone, Cognition is pretty much, it's to learn something and then use that learning. So usually we see this in terms of, of thinking and reasoning, which just so you know, I should remind everyone that whole thinking and reasoning is a huge part of critical thinking. And I'm always getting on folks because humans are losing that ability to think and reason. Um, but when it comes to that whole cognition, we can't forget the remembering part. It's always good to remember things, which unfortunately nowadays for me is a struggle. So it sure <laughs> sucks to get old. I, I agree. I agree. So thinking, reasoning, and, and remembering, you know, those are, those are our key to learning for, for starters, but the, the thinking and the reasoning are, are, are a little bit even more than that. Um, so anyway, some of the ways that we look at that are, for example, a thing called instinctual drift, you know, which is the ability of an animal to ignore that ingrained instinctual response because it's learned something new to compensate against that response. Um, then we, we also have, of course, causal relationships. Did Wait a second. You, you say casual relationships? You're not trying to get me to talk about my experiences with last call again. Uh, no, Dee. I, I do not want to hear about your college days again. Well, I'm kind of glad you said that because there is absolutely nothing casual about them. I had, to, I had to work hard on those pickup lines. Okay, no, I said causal, not casual relationships. You know this one. I do. Yes, you and I talked about causal relationships not long ago. Um, anyway, it's, you know, in, in the case of this, this topic that we're on now, it's where, you know, you, you teach a bird to lift off a lid for a food reward that you just put in that can. 
And then later, after the bird has learned, you know, lift lid, get treat, then you set the lid on the counter right next to the can. And then you put the treat in the can and the bird still lifts up that lid and then goes over to get the food. So the bird doesn't actually understand the causal relationship there. Okay. I, I think I'm picking up on what you're, you're laying down there, I think. Um, all right. Give me and other uh, slower thinking people out there that are listening to us more clarification on that bird lid example. Okay. Okay. So we, we create that causal relationship at first because lifting the lid causes the bird to be able to get access to the food. So it's, you know, when we say causal relationship, it's cause and effect. The cause is lift, you know, we, we made the lid, the cause and lift the, the lid, get access to the food. But when we shift it so that the lid is still available, but it no longer actually needs to be moved to get the food, we've removed that cause and effect, or we've removed that, that causal relationship between the lid and the access to the food. But the bird now keeps on lifting the lid and then diving into the can that's right there. So it's more of a, a learned behavior rather than understanding that causal relationship. Does that help? I think so. It sounds to me that they have more of a brain like a cat. Daryl. <laughs> so, okay, no, I, that 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 is much clearer in my mind. Thank you for clarifying that for me. But the question is, how do we differentiate between a learned behavior and if that equates to intelligence? Okay, between a learned behavior and intelligence, like rationalizing the causal relationship, like you know, like we're. The animal can use reasoning skills and make rational decisions without that methodical planning. So if we go back to the, the bird, that would mean they ponder that, yes, there's a lid, but that lid no longer needs to be moved because the food is openly accessible. So can they make that rational evaluation and decision? Exactly. And I mean, it's, you know, it's great. And I'm making this stuff up on the spot, but yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you though, I read a, a study about chimpanzees where they, the, the chimpanzee simply had to lift up a box to get to a banana. So, you know, they literally, they put this banana under a box, you know, and chimpanzees watch it. They put the banana under the box and then they provided an array of tools around the box. So rather than sitting back, considering the situation, and then determining the rational step, the chimp just, you know, it's randomly started picking up and trying each and every tool in an effort to get the banana. So, you know, a lot of those old studies, they're really weird because it's, it's not certain if animals are just trying random things until they get to a happy outcome. Okay. I like the chimp example, but let, let's go back to dogs because I, I kind of bragged on them earlier. All right. We all know, I'm sure we've all seen those Facebook video clips or the, the YouTube video clips where it shows that a dog can get out of a fence because it learns to open a latch. Yeah. But the question here is different because, you know, they didn't sit down and stare at the mechanics of the latch and determine if I nudge that thing up to a certain angle, I can, I can open the gate. It's usually a whole bunch of random activities and, you know, when they pull and nudge enough, the thing finally opens. So they get their happy, sweet freedom moment. Um, so they do eventually perfect that. Yes. You know, so I, I do believe that there's some intelligence demonstrated because they do learn to put two and two together, proverbially, obviously. 
So, you know, they do teach themselves to recreate the activity that led them to that happy outcome. But we're all pretty sure they didn't get there by evaluating the mechanics of the latch. And we can sort of see that because if that dog watches us change out that lacking, 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 latching mechanism yeah thanks for not helping there bud (laughs) anyway (laughs) if they change that latching mechanism out they still try the exact same old tactics you know it's it's they don't rationalize that because there's different mechanics at play they need to try something different so have you have you ever heard of morgan's cannon no but it sounds really interesting Yeah. So see lloyd morgan he's this 19th century psych uh psychologist and he said Uh, Let me get my quote out here. Okay. In no case is an animal activity to be interpreted in terms of higher psychological processes if it can be fairly interpreted in terms of processes which stand lower in the scale of psychological evolution and development. And I totally agree with that. You know, add to it all the anecdotal observations that people are always citing and then the entrenched anthropomorphism these animals are often subjected to. And I would tell you, we have some seriously skewed science when it comes to us interpreting intelligence. Okay, time out. First off, <laughs> you're a jerk because I, <laughs> I was waiting the whole time to hear about some amazing cannon design from World War One, but instead you throw the obscure meaning of cannon at me. You know, the one with the, the single N instead of the two Ns. So cannon <laughs> spelled C-A-N-O-N. Anyway, that cannon literally means a general ruler principle. And so there's a big letdown because I was waiting for some big gun story. Secondly, it doesn't hurt that that cannon that you just declared supports your whole earlier theory that we too often use human definitions to define intelligence. And thirdly, I am whipping out that yellow flag because holy nerd word foul batman (laughs) okay true on all counts sorry for the climactic letdown on the cannon but anyway i should have realized who i was talking to but i know i know you should (laughs) have go ahead and and translate for me then on my nerd word foul please okay so when you say entrenched anthropomorphism you just mean that we've taken animals and we've altered what they would be out in nature because of all the people and people things around them, and because we're trying to relate their activities to the old, what would a human do theory? And so the bottom line is, we as humans, we think of animals as humans. Uh, Yeah, and ironically, that's what I thought I said. No, no, you didn't even come close to saying that in English. Okay. Uh, that, that was, that was good, but it was confusing. And so now that we have like literally zero idea of what makes an animal, animal smart, let's, (laughs) your brain just works so faster and much quicker than mine does, but let's, let's try to slow this down and let's, let's talk about a couple of groups of animals that are typically classified as what we would say as being above average in intelligence and and why we say that okay well i'm i'm not gonna pick that low-hanging fruit you know the the easy i'm gonna go with chimpanzees i'm not gonna do that i'm gonna pick your favorite just so that you don't get to and that's bears (laughs) so one of the studies that i read actually had to do with what we call numerical cognition so it's and it's a decent one because it's based on rationalizing amounts you know there's 
There's always been some argument that numerical cognition was developed more in social groups, like in primates, because they needed to keep up with the you know, approximate number that's in their, their overall troop, that big ginormous family group, I guess you could say. Anybody's <laughs> not familiar with the word troop. Well, I, I, anyway. I, I laughed because like sometimes like those distant cousins, you don't mind losing. So I would never keep track. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, good old cousin Joe we don't talk about in public. <laughs> Anyhow, so long story short, the three bears that were used to test this more or less, and that's, and I'm, I'm putting quotes around those because that's what numerical cognition is. It's determining quantity more or less. Um, so we use these three bears and they, they use these three bears to test more or less. And they, it was specifically related to quantity. And the bears did show a favorable aptitude with being able to select more or less when, when prompted. But admittedly, they did have some issues when the surface area was like way out of whack. So, you know, they were, if there was, you know, two dots that, that was, you know, a huge surface area, but they had six dots, then we obviously know six is more than two. And they, they did have a little bit of an issue when the surface area was way out of whack. Anyway, they were also better at determining more or less when that ratio was broader. So for example, they could determine, you know, pretty consistently that four was less than nine, but they had issues when it was close. Like when they had to, you know, pick less on a screen and one screen shows eight, the other screen only shows 10. So the ratio, you know, distance was a much smaller one. So, and ironically, of course, like little kids, they do have a prevalence for more. I am just so glad they didn't give me that test because that bear test, because that would fail miserably. But since the bears did so well, I guess you agree with me that I'm not wrong when I talk about how smart bears are. Well, you know, I, I will say that they're good learners. You know, they're they're really great at working through trial and error to get what they want. And it's no secret that they can use tools. You know, I've read some research by Old Lynn Rogers that uh, uses some anecdotal information about bears using tools and Considering that, along with brain size, there is an estimate of intelligence of a bear being that of around a three or four-year-old human. But until we get a better way to figure out smarts in an animal, I will say that they, you know, they fall on the smarter part of the, you know, who's the smartest continuum. But that's, that's literally as far as I'm willing to take it. Because let's be honest, lots and lots of animals can and do use tools and they can work through trial and error to get what they want. So anyway, okay, your turn. Um, you, you spurred something in me and that, that was, I, I've heard lots of examples of animals using tools, but I think the coolest example, and I, I, I'm going to botch it tremendously, but just listen to a podcast earlier, I think it was late last year, uh, there is a bird in Australia, and I forget what species of bird it is, but would you believe, Steph, they have actually learned to use fire? And what they do is when, when you have those grass and shrub fires going on, obviously when a fire is burning, uh, it's going to scare a lot of animals, rodents, and other things out. And they've documented these birds picking up sticks that will have burning embers, and those birds will actually transfer those burning twigs to another part to to start other places on fire so they they've seen the birds actually spreading <laughs> some of the fire around which which is amazing so, great lots of little yes, yes. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> the smoky bears arch enemy 
<laughs> anyway, you you've you've done a great job at showing off your brain power because quite honestly, your brain works a whole lot different than mine. Um, my brain, I would say, is way more simplistic. So I typically need much more tangible and easier to understand sound bites. So let's let's stick with my forte, bears. Ah. Uh. I was trying to avoid that because of your inherent bias. Hush, hush. I like my bears. But your your whole description of bears and this numerical cognition kind of, I'll, I'll be honest, it kind of lost me a little bit. So let me, let me throw out some real-world problem-solving examples. And I'm going to steal this first example from Kim Delosier. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, Kim was the head biologist for Great Smoky Mountain National Park for a long, long time. And he once told me of this, this one bear that he had to deal with for a number of years in this one picnic area. And obviously the big thing when it comes to bears is trying to keep them out of the garbage cans and the garbage dumpsters. And so th there's been tremendous breakthroughs technologically that makes uh, more or less bear proof or bear resistant dumpsters it literally nothing's bear proof, but some of those dumpster designs really make it difficult for bears to get into. They, they have all these latch designs and different things like that. But this one bear that he told me about in the picnic area had learned, and it was probably only after uh, one or two different times when the garbage truck would come by, if they did not set that dumpster properly on the concrete pad, there was a wobble to the dumpster. And whenever the bear can see that wobble, the, the bear would then nudge, nudge the dumpster over on the concrete pad to afford him the ability to literally roll that dumpster over and get into it. And so that, that bear must have had something click in his brain from literally only one or two possible events. And, and that's all it took for him for him to learn that behavior. So what are your thoughts on that, Steph? Mm, okay, so first a question. Are you anecdotally saying that maybe only one or two things allowed him to learn this? Like yeah. he literally, we have we have evidence that says he had two choices, two tries. Yeah. He had to get no. it on the second yeah, try. Yeah, that, that, that was anecdotally. That. But I, I imagine that um, the the garbage crew generally did a good job putting it putting the dumpster back on the concrete pad and every once in a blue moon, it would be, it would be off kilter. So that, that's why I, I can't say it 100%. That's why it's, it's more anecdotally that he, it, it was a rare encounter that he suddenly learned. Okay. Well, first I would need some evidence that it was legitimately a rare encounter okay. and that it wasn't more like more shoot me down not already. It was wobbly. Shoot me down already. Yeah. Anyway, well, like I said, though, I'm, I am not saying that trial and error that eventually leads to a happy outcome and, you know, and then it's incorporated into future situations. I'm not saying that that isn't some sign of intelligence. I'm just saying that what I would consider true intelligence is, you know, the bear looking at the dumpster, understanding the, you know, the mechanics of everything involved and then making a rationalized decision rather than just, you know, try everything till I figure out something that works. Learning, learning, though, is definitely a sign of smarts, sure. But, you know, rationalized decision making, in my opinion, is key. So if I take if I take your bear and I take four differently designed trash cans and I line them all up and they have the exact same contents in them. So, you know, not not one 
smelling better than any other to attract it to that one. So whatever, all things being equal. Will that bear rationalize how to enter each one of those? Or are they just going to go through the gamut of their learned activities to figure out which one works on all of them? Even if one of them's, you know, just a super easy, just lift off the lid kind of thing, you know, they're, but they're going to probably go through the gamut on all of them. And if they figure out one that works on that first one, they're going to automatically do that on the next ones, regardless if that's what it takes on that one or not. So anyway, it's, it's not really rationalizing. It's just, it's a pragmatic stubbornness to, to do what they have to do until they do learn in fact, what works, but that's when, you know, they always do that. Then it's a learned behavior. Again, I'm not saying that learning isn't a sign of intelligence. It definitely is. I'm just saying that there's no rationalization in there. Correct. I get you. Okay. Okay. I'm glad you addressed that, but um, I do have my fair share of bear stories. So I'm going to throw another bear story out. And this is probably my favorite example of where bears just appear to be crazy, crazy intelligent. And did I ever tell you about Milo's distant cousin? Well, I mean, is it his first cousin, second cousin? <laughs> Just go ahead and tell me. Okay. My, Milo was a bear at the Appalachian Bear Rescue, oh, probably six, seven years ago. And obviously, they, they're always writing stories on their Facebook page about all the different bears that come into that center. And Milo was getting ready to be released. And lo and behold, the curators there had a really difficult time trapping Milo. And it went on for days and days where they could not get this bear to come into a bear trap. Anyway, that spurred a memory of mine back when I was working at the bear center. And this was back in the late 1990s. We had about seven or eight bears in the large bear pen. And they were all due to be released. So they're all large enough to be returned to the wild. And so typically what I would do is I would set a, it was more or less a have a heart trap, which is a large cage that you bait with food. And when they walk into this cage, they step on a foot pad that releases the door, the door swings shut and the bear is trapped. And so you put the, the food at the back of the cage. So over the course of a week or two, I had trapped all but one of the bears. They, I, I, would, I would go down there, put bait in the trap and I'd return either a few hours later or maybe overnight. And lo and behold, there's one of the bears trapped in, in the have a heart trap, just like looking like a, a Dumas in French. Um, and so <laughs> I, I did that over and over and it was just going so smoothly. And I, then I was down to one bear. And so I, I baited the trap. I set it, left it all day long. No bear. Left it overnight, go down there. Not only was there no bear, but the food was gone. I'm like, huh. So rebaited it, and lo and behold, every time I go down there expecting to catch that last bear, I could not capture him. The trap was not sprung, and the food was always missing. So here in my mind, I'm like, all right, there's a possum, a raccoon, some type of small animal that's dragging my, my bait away before the, the bear gets in there. And so I believe it or not, I even, I even went to the point of, of buying a package of raw bacon and literally tying the bacon strips <laughs> so they couldn't be dragged out. Um, literally tying them in there so um, so nothing could steal that bait. And sure enough, a couple more days go by. 
Food is gone. No bear trapped. And I, I was getting sick of it. Kim Delosier, who was needing to release that bear, he kept calling, where's that bear? So finally, I'm like, I got to find out what's going on here. So I put bait in the trap, set the set the trap. I left the, the cage, but this time we had an observation tower. And I crawled up in there, and I just sat there. And I was willing to wait all day, all night, to see what happens in that trap. And lo and behold, it didn't take but maybe 10, 15 minutes after things had settled down, I saw the bear that I'm trying to trap. And he walks down, he walks over to the, the trap. He begins to walk in the trap, but when he gets to that foot pad, he puts one paw on the side of the cage to, the, to his right, his other paw on the side of the cage to his left. Then his two back paws go up and he was literally suspended in midair and he crawled forward a little bit using the, the inside of the cage as his suspension. And he would eat the food that was beyond the foot pad. And the fortunate thing when I was watching him, he as he was eating, I must have tied the food in really good because as he was trying to get the food, one of his paws slipped and he ended up hitting the foot pad and I did capture him. But lo and behold, I caught the bugger in action where he was doing the suspended trick to get that food without getting caught. There, explain how in the world did that bear, <laughs> how in the world did that bear know how to do that, having never done it before, but possibly watching other bears get trapped? So I, I will say that there does appear from that story to be a bit of a, a causal relationship where, you know, I press you know i've watched six of my you know six or seven of my siblings walk in there when they hit said thing door drops big guy comes you know hauls them away i don't want that to happen so yes. again they, they, I, I will admit to some of that but on the flip side i really really wish that you would have fully tested that by um well i actually i kind of i guess you could say i wish the bear didn't set off the trap that time because i would have loved it if you had had the ability to take that pressure plate out, the legitimate pressure plate yeah. out, maybe even take the the gate that pops down to, you know, seal the enclosure, take that off, maybe paint a, you know, a fake spot on the the grass where it's laying that looks like it could be not even the same color, but just something to emulate a, a potential Put difference that. in the, the thing there and see if it was able to rationalize that you had changed the situation. And then say, okay, and this one, I don't have to do that. I can just waltz on this and tap dance on it if I feel like it. And you're not gonna, you're not gonna catch me. So, yeah. again, I'm not gonna say I do agree. Bears are higher on the intelligence, in my personal opinion, higher on the intelligence continuum. Um, and and they definitely, you know, can do trial and error to learn things. And obviously, and we've seen that with bears in the wild too, and in other species where. They can watch their mom to learn to mimic an activity. In this case, it was kind of the opposite of that, though. So your cubby was watching these other bears and he learned what not to do, you know, because they were doing it. So I'm not going to tell you he's not he's not. But on the flip side, you may have had Mr. Little Einstein, you know, bear there. So I I, one individual to define the intelligence of an entire species. Think about what would happen if we let that happen in humans. Anyway, right. sorry. Yeah, random. No, 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 that, that was good stuff. But I, I think that second scenario I, I gave you with the bear entering that trap or knowing how to defeat that trap is a great example where the animal, and in this case, the bear, it literally had to think to do some problem solving. Because how it, how it knew how 
to that suspended animation not to hit the foot pad was amazing. But that was one of the coolest things I ever witnessed. Anyway, I totally agree. In that case, you can actually make an argument for intelligence in that particular animal. Yeah, and agreed. And you you can definitely see some signs of higher intelligence as it relates to to learning with bears and with other animals. And somehow, once again, you have made this all about bears. I am good like that. You you don't understand how much I try to do that because bears are awesome. Uh, but um, can I say I think I think this is a good example of why we really need to rethink our whole approach to bear education. Uh, their their intelligence can be extremely problematic. And, and where where I'm going, you, you know how we're always bear education is not educating bears it's educating people and we just can't do it because in order for for um a neighborhood or a town or anything to be completely um free of any bear issues you got to get every single person doing the right thing and that will never ever 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 happen and so what i've started preaching over the last six months or so is let's instead of trying to teach everyone let, let's get one or two human individuals that love bears that will actually do the right thing for bears and let them be the the force to te start teaching bears and so whether or not it's scaring them away with air horns or doing something providing that negative stimulus so when a bear comes into a neighborhood if there's one or two neighbors that as soon as they see that bear, they're acting all crazy neighbor on them and, and banging pots and pans and sirens and chasing them with their Karelian bear dogs, then that bear will learn. Put it this way, that bear will learn faster than the humans will learn. So anyway, that, that's my that's my tangent on bear education. So. Well, and, and you have no idea how much I enjoy these conversations because these discussions just simply lead to more thoughts and more questions, but it really isn't all about Daryl's bears. Yes, um, but though I, I will admit though, because they are a large mammal, they can be more problematic with society. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the intellect of all animals that we need to reconsider. Anyway, I, I think more research needs to watch decision-making while animals do their natural things. You know, obviously, when we're talking to keep this back on, on animal intelligence, we, we have easy examples on what a, um, and I'm air quoting, what a not smart animal looks like. Cats. Um, no, I was thinking koalas actually. <laughs> um, but, and I think though, and this, this is just in my opinion. So I need to make that very clear that this is a Stephanie opinion, not nothing science. I really think that we need to make it less, about what we would teach an animal and then try to test that. Um, I think that already that, that that skews everything because you know to teach them, you have to give them a reward. And it's, I, I just, I don't think- It's already not it. natural, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that that anthropomorphization between the environment that we're putting them in and then you know looking at how would a human define intelligence, I think that that's just not great. I think you know we need to look more about what these animals do in the wild and things that they encounter in the wild. And the, it's not just about the ability to survive like we were talking earlier, but it's about the ability to, to learn and reason and you know watch them do different things specific to different situations. So we actually can get examples of 
just going back to that, you know, bear in the trash can, find a non-trash can related example where a bear knows in this situation with that specific item, this is how I accomplish something where we can actually see them do those, that, that reasoning, that deductive reasoning that we look for so often to help define intelligence. But again, I will continue to say learning, learning is definitely a sign of intelligence. Yeah, no, that's good stuff. And, and just so you know, I too love thinking about this stuff and I love researching things. But keep in mind, researching involves knowing where you're getting your information and not only not only knowing where you're getting it, but also trusting that source you're getting it from. Oh, yeah. You know, remember, first book, first book, first, if it's on Facebook, probably not 100 percent accurate unless you're really, really certain that the source has done their due diligence. But Google, you know, unless, it's say, unless you're reading wildlife for you, then, you know, it's well, gold. Well, well, we do our due diligence, though, but yeah. that's the thing. Far too often, people just trust the first thing that they see and they accept it. But anyway, and like Google, you know, Google, it's a search engine. It is not the name of an omniscient deity. You know, things on there, they're written, anything that's on the interwebs, it's pretty much written by people or written by code that was written by people and people are fallible. You know, sometimes people may just say something poorly that's misconstrued. Other times they might just be flat out wrong. You know, Google does not censor for accuracy. Facebook does not censor for accuracy. You know, so that's really where intelligence honestly comes from. It's with that, like you said, the critical thinking and the asking questions and the root cause and not being satisfied by the easiest results and then calling that gospel. All right. Um, I hope that came through. I know you got a little garbly on my end, but I hope that came through. But I guess the moral behind this story is first off, don't believe everything you find on Google because all of that stuff that you find on Google, it's still put there by humans. Um, but secondly, when it comes to animals, let's not be so rigid when we consider the intellect of animals. We, we're always putting them in human terms or human perspective. And there's just so, so, so much more to learn. Yeah, very, very valid point. I mean, the first thing we do is try to equate that intellect to what it would be in human. You know, oh, dogs and bears, they're as smart as the average three and four-year-olds, respectively. You, you know, as well as I do, smarts and age don't always correlate. You know, how smart we are, honestly, or I should say, let me, how smart are we, honestly, when we keep doing in, in that and we're trying to say, hey, look, this apple is comparable to this papaya. It's just silly. Yeah. Anyway, I, I know we're getting up there in time. I know you were worried that we'd be short on time, but I think we, we're going to be hitting like the 50-minute mark here. So I believe that sounds like we're at a wrap for this. But before I do, I do want to do a small shout-out and mention something that we're kind of excited about. We're, we're going to be listed on this new platform that's coming out. I believe it's released tomorrow. Um, right, and it's February called February 12th. Yeah, and it's called Critter Facts. Um, and what it is, it's going to be, it's this web-based radio show that is simply going to be playing lots of different wildlife-related podcasts and information up there. And they contacted us. They said, your show is awesome. I said, I know that. And they asked if they could use it up on their, their platform. So uh, we'll, we'll post more information once that gets up and running and they work all the kinks out. But um, we'll have you check it out soon. And so we'll probably post that on our website, like I said. Anyway, that's all I had to say. So you want to do the honors? Yes. But for the record, you didn't exactly nail what the 
what the the critter thing is but anyway but it's close enough for government business yeah um anyway so sure yeah if if you don't already follow us on our podcast be sure to clicky that old follow button so you know when we've got something new for you on uh, on your feed of course there's also our website at www.wildlifeforyou.com all spelled out and then our preferred way to communicate is through the old book of faces so feel free to give us a like and a follow on even drop us a line we love that actually on our facebook which is also wildlife for you uh, any other shout outs, Mr. Ratajack? Maybe one. You want me to do it now or should we save it for another one? You know, it depends. Are you going to be like more than a minute and a half? I mean, what are you going to do here? Um, no, I'll do it now. The The okay. other shout out I was going to do was, was for this friend of mine that um, has inspired this podcast. And when I, when I talk about that friend of mine, I'm referring to you, Steph. And I just wanted to say thank you for kicking me in the back end to get this podcast up and running. You often inspired me to do so many creative and imaginative things. I promise you, if, if I didn't meet you that fateful day when you were about to tear a new butthole to one of my coworkers, <laughs> things, my life would have been so much different. But um, you, you set a course in me that really saw the need to really begin to work with the public and to teach people. And without you kind of pointing that out to say, man, we got some bad things going on here and we got to right the ship. Uh, so I've, I've always been meaning to thank you for that because you truly have changed so much what I do. And you, you're oftentimes I, I credit you to be the inspiration bit behind the wildlife for you, because without that, that kick in the pants, um, I probably never would have set foot in that direction. So huge shout out to you. Thank you for inspiring me to do a lot of these things. And you are one of my best friends. Oh, thank you. And it is hard to write that ship. It is a big ship and it turns real slow. So anyway, with that, I would like to remind everyone that when it comes to wildlife, you your knowledge often means their existence. Good night, folks.